0: Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Jay on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Evan Schlecker, president of Morgan Group. These guys are one of the largest multifamily developers in the country, and Evan is leading everything on their development and construction side. Evan's been responsible for the development of over 7,000 units, almost $2 billion worth of product. Morgan Group at any one time has 15 to 20 apartment development deals under construction. We talk about how he builds his company, how he's risen to lead the company at such a young age, what other businesses he's interested in, how he's innovating in the multifamily space, and how he finds capital partners, how he manages the construction process, how they have a dialed-in spec book so that there is consistency across their entire portfolio, across the whole country, it is an awesome conversation today. Please enjoy my chat with Evan Schlecker. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming up to Fort Lauderdale.
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited and really enjoy the studio. I'm looking forward to
0: it. You are the first guest in the new studio, so we're going to celebrate that. But this is about you. So I think a good place to start is to really understand how you got your start in real estate and what coming up in real estate looked like for you
1: sure so a lot a lot of people in real estate come from long you know long time real estate families that was not my story my dad was a doctor my mom worked in the lo- in the legal side of things and i just knew that neither was interesting to me and so I, in college the only thing that was left over was kind of sales and trading and real estate i gravitated towards real estate when I graduated college, it was the depths of the financial crash, the last one in, in 2008, 2009. It was, I had a tough time getting a job because I was so focused on being in, a, in, in real estate. It ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me. I was working for a special servicer in New York City, and so I was exposed to some of the worst real estate and the worst borrowers across the country and I was just thrown into the deep end. I was 22 years old, barely knew what an interest rate was or a cap rate was, but yet I was working out defaulted loans. I, was, I remember one time going to my boss and saying, uh, what do you think? Should I approve this lease with Ace Hardware out in Tacoma, Washington? I'd never been to Tacoma, Washington. He goes, well, what do you think? I was like, yeah, it seem, seems like a pretty good deal. He's like, all right, go ahead. And, there, and I approved a $2 million capital budget just like that. And so, anyway, well, I was there for about two years, and now we're 2011-ish. And how naive I was in hindsight is almost comical. But what I actually did understand was how special servicers work. And at the time, it was like this big black box. No one knew how to access any loan that had gone into special servicing. But just by happenstance that was the one thing i really did know because i was the one figuring out what to do with those loans and some of the real estate was really good real estate and so uh, i was working in 230 park my business partner and college friend philip morgan was working in 200 park okay and so every day you know not every day but a couple days a week during lunch we would talk about what was next and i had him and i had the idea of well why don't we try to buy one of these deals or two of these deals from special servicers? And so we actually did, we bought a couple of deals all through a platform that's still around today called auction.com, yep. where you literally go online and bid on it as if you're buying like a cool pair of Nike sneakers, right, from the 1990s. And before we knew it, we were we bought a couple of pieces of real estate through that. And the biggest deal we bought was down in Southwest Houston I was dating my wife at the time now and we had we were the proud owners of uh, a note on a 224 unit class it was kind of a class B minus in terms of quality a class D in terms of location apartment complex that was 30% occupied we we were going to get our hands dirty and so I I told my girlfriend at the time I was moving to Houston, Texas. I had never been to Houston, Texas. Barely been to Texas at the time. And Philip and I were on site every day. I bought a pickup truck. We acted as the general contractor. We acted as the property manager. And we rehabbed this complex in record time. We took it from 30% occupied to over 90% occupied in a matter of seven or eight months. We did a full renovation of the pool, we totally rebuilt the clubhouse, new roofs. That was kind of our first deal. We we sold the property to a guy out of Michigan 366 days later. Did you make money? And yeah, we made money, but you know, frankly, anything you bought in 2011, you were going to do well on, right? It's a rising tide kind of lifts all, all boats. We made every mistake under the sun, but yeah, we at the time we made more money than we 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 ever could have imagined, which in the scheme of things was really not that much, but to us 25 years old it was it was
0: an amazing start. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. And you went kind of over the fact of how you just bought this thing on auction.com. I think you probably understood what to look for and what the opportunities might be from your experience at the servicer. Auction.com was probably pretty new then. How did you figure out how to navigate that, how to do it, how to finance it? Where did you get the money from? And then why Houston? Sure. So I wish I wish I could tell you that we had some grand plan. A lot of it
1: was just happenstance. Auction, so my, the group that I worked for, when I joined, it was ING, Clarion, and now it's called Torchlight. We were actually, I think, the first company to use Auction.com. And so while I was there, that was kind of an efficient way for us to dispose of some of our small balance loans. And so I knew the guys who ran Auction.com. I understood that it wasn't some some scam. Like right. We were actually selling right. real real estate and we weren't going to just like get our money stolen. So I understood the system. I also understood that not a lot of people trusted it, right? It was, a, it was kind of a nascent platform. And because of that, it limited competition. And you'll, maybe as we talk, this will come up again, but I'm somebody who always is looking to play in a sandbox where there's not as much competition. You know, I don't consider myself to be the smartest guy in the world. So it's like, all right, well, how am I going to win in anything I do? It's like, all right, let's play in a box that other people aren't as focused on. And so that was part of the strategy. I also liked the fact that we were able; it was accessible because everything that was selling at that time through auction.com was a little bit more bite-sized. Yeah. So we bought the note on this property for about $10,000 a unit, which it was it was built in 1982 very reasonable bones and you know you kind of can't believe that it wasn't that long ago that you were able to buy property for $10,000 a unit
0: but we were just attracted to the price per pound and we won what about the scale and size of the property influence your decision to buy that property because i think a lot of people maybe for their first deal they're looking for a duplex or four units you jump right into two hundred. We did.
1: We we bought a couple of other things that were much smaller in nature. We bought it. We bought a piece of land for like 80,000, Like I think it was a five or seven acres for eighty thousand dollars. I mean, this was a different world. I'm not. Hopefully, we're not headed back to that type of draconian world. But one one thing that my prior boss would always stress, and and at at uh, ING as well as Mike Morgan. Was the is the importance of scale. And it is very tough to make money when you don't have scale because our goal was not to be on site every day in perpetuity. So we needed to hire a property manager and the property manager needed to hire leasing agents. And so there's just this, there's a fixed cost element of doing that. And so that was part of the reason that we were attracted to a larger opportunity. And some of it was, that was just what was available. We bid on a lot of deals that we lost. And on on this project, we called it, we rebranded it as Bluestone Apartments. We actually were way below the reserve price. So we bid, went to bed that night not thinking twice about it and then got a call the next day from the platform saying do you still want it is your number still good and we said yeah our number's still good and they go okay well you have you have 10 days to close where did you get the money from we we had talked with a few private investors ahead of time and we kind of we, without talking about a specific opportunity we told them about what our acquisitions box looked like and that's another theme that may come up And so we kind of had a soft pre-approval, so long as we could find opportunities that fit within that acquisitions box. And luckily, this deal
0: fits squarely in the middle of it. I want to talk about why scale is important in the context of plentiful third-party managers. You can go higher, maybe a CapEx group. In this environment, why does scale matter in multifamily? So, good question. Something we talk about a lot. Before I answer that, I want
1: to back up and talk about the commercial real estate industry in general, because it feels like we're living through a transformation where commercial real estate is being perceived by the investment community. It used to be perceived as more of an alternative asset class, and now it's becoming a primary asset class. And the reality when you think about any of the major food groups in real in real estate, so industrial, retail, office, multifamily, right? What what affects valuations? It's there's I'm oversimplifying it, but it's kind of two things, it's interest rates and it's capital flows. And so the more capital that's flowing into any space is going to make value, you know, valuations go down. And kind of what happened with you know if you go back 20 30 years right stocks and bonds right the creation of etfs totally transformed the stock market and gave your average retail investor access to stocks and the same thing with blackrock and bonds and so right now with multifamily we're living, we're, we're basically watching in front of our eyes as it's kind of finding its logical place in terms of investor return expectations between equities and bonds and so that's that's the background for my for for your real question. So it's like, so where is multifamily going, and why does scale matter? As the industry has grown up and as the industry has institutionalized, investors are just expecting more and more, and they're also looking for people that are delivering a specific type of product and do and able to do it at scale and so We love the development business because we're still able to be extremely entrepreneurial. And I I think that as a developer, if you ever lose sight of being entrepreneurial, it's probably the day you should get out of business because there's just no way to compete. But we also, at the same time, need to be able to deliver the product that the end user wants and is going to pay a premium for. And so by scaling, we're able to afford the best market information and market intelligence we're able to create operating efficiencies which is critical because you you need specialists it's very hard to be a jack of all trades and and excel at each one of those things so by having scale we know the person running our asset management business is incredible at that and they wake up every day thinking about asset management yep. Same with, same with accounting. You know, we have four different accounting groups within Morgan, which is, which is kind of crazy to say, but property accountants think very different than construction accountants. And FP and A is a totally different beast. And we need people that are specialists in each one of those verticals. And then on the same is obviously true for development. Um, the people, you know, the people on our teams that are out there every day trying to dig up opportunities and talk to the local landowner who's owned the site you know, and their family for 50, 100 years. And so we need people that are local and only thinking about site acquisitions. And that's kind of where we see the industry going. And the reality is, it's all about our people. And scale allows you to hire the best people. And it also, scale and growth gives those people opportunities right. to go to the next position and the next position and the next position. And with every person you have on your team, right? They come with their own relationships. And that's, w- that's what Morgan Group, our company, is. It's a collection of everybody's
0: experiences and relationships.
1: It feels like it's as simple as that.
0: Is the only way to expand to new markets when you have scale? Because a lot of people talk about developers have to be local. They have to be developing in the city that they're living in but clearly you and Morgan are not doing that. Other successful groups are not doing that. So how are you now developing in multiple places, and what in your early career, investing a deal in Houston, where you didn't live, how did that influence that part of the strategy and your comfort level in being able to do that? Yeah, so
1: while I didn't live in Houston, I dropped everything, my family, my friends, and moved to Houston. Really? Because it was, yeah. Because it it was pretty. We we realized pretty quickly, and we definitely stubbed our toe. How do you hire the right roofer unless you're there, meeting with the guy and feeling him out? So, we are a big believer in being local. So, taking it to Morgan Group today, how we're set up. There's certain parts of development and construction that are that that require you to be hyper local. But then there's other parts of what we do that we can handle more nationally. And so, if we look back at prior cycles, something that we learned was we never hit it out of the park on the first deal we did. It was always the second and third deal in the same geography where we got incrementally better, more efficient, and were able to drive margin. So, in the past we were a little bit more spread out geographically i think morgan group over our tenure has built in something like 15 or 17 different states back in 2015 2016 as philip and i were still coming up in the business and getting a little bit more confident with our strategy we we realized that we needed to rethink kind of who we were as a company and what we decided was that we needed to shrink geographically in order to grow. And so that that ultimately ended up with us. One of the hardest decisions we had to make was shutting down our Southern California office. It was an office that had been incredibly good to Mike Morgan and, our, and his other lieutenants over the years, but things in California were changing. And in hindsight, it feels like we were right. And it's not that you can't do well in California. It just takes an incredibly long time to get a shovel in the ground
0: and it's extremely capital intensive and no amount of scale is going to mitigate all those things that are out of your control in california exactly and
1: so we may be back there one day right if we're a much bigger company and we're able to carve off kind of a don't know a rainy day fund and say we're going to take a 10 20 30 year outlook on california because i think that there's incredible opportunity there but for who we are as a company today, we want to be in in three. We're in three major geographies: Colorado, Texas, Florida. And within those states, there you can pl- You can there's plenty of other markets, and our development and construction teams are hyper local. And then all of our other business functions, like so, capital markets, accounting, legal, all of that is handled on a national basis. And then within our development and construction teams, we invest in the best possible people to lead those teams because if we're in the construction business in Colorado, we need to hold ourselves to the standard of the best GC in that market. Otherwise, why are we building for ourselves? We would just hire that
0: GC. So you self perform. We did. We're gonna talk about that. But what does it mean to be hyper-local from a development and construction standpoint? in your business? First of all, we're, we're not a remote work culture, so you're in the office every day. So you have an office
1: in each of these places? Yeah, so today, just to give you a sense of kind of where our people are geographically, we have an office in Denver. We have three offices in, in, in Texas, excuse me. We have our headquarters in Houston. We have our almost our development and construction headquarters in Austin, and we cover San Antonio from Austin, that's central Texas. And then we have a small office in Dallas, where we cover the DFW region. And then here in Florida, we have an office in Winwood, and we cover South and Central Florida out of Winwood. I wouldn't be surprised to see us opening. A small office either in Tampa or Orlando sometime in the next 12 to 24 months.
0: And how do you know when it's time to open an office? Are you saying, hey, we want to invest in Tampa, so we're not going to first invest then open an office? You're opening an office, hiring the best people that you think are in that market and having them go find deals? Or do you find the deals then open the office? Yeah, good, good question. And I would say
1: there's we're open to doing it both ways. So we are active in Orlando and Tampa currently. We've completed a bunch of deals there are. We're, we're currently under construction on a deal in Orlando that we're opening up in less than 30 days, which is a huge achievement for the team. We have a decent pipeline of future projects in both those geographies and we've been running it out of South Florida. So there the advantage of Running it out of South Florida is that our leader who oversees Central Florida is shoulder to shoulder with the Florida team yep. every day. And so culturally, it's really good from a process and communication standpoint with some of our architects that are in house or the development managers. It just, it, it makes that communication flow really seamless. And it's a drive or a 45 minute flight. So it's very accessible. But the flip side is if we had someone that was truly boots on the ground there, you know, maybe, maybe they would see that see opportunities that we're not currently covering, not being there and going to happy hour on a random Tuesday night with that hypothetical landowner I brought up before. Yeah. And so, like anything in life, it's a trade-off. And at the end of the day, it's all about the right person. So if we have the right person, we're gonna empower them to figure out
0: what what works best for both themselves and their family as well as for the business so you and your partner are running this little entrepreneurial real estate shop do you say wait a second i need scale so i'm going to join morgan how how does that happen how do you go from an entrepreneur to then going into a family business and ultimately running that business
1: yeah so I'm I'm laughing because you're you're making me think about a funny a funny story that I hadn't thought about in a while. So my partner, Philip Morgan, the CEO, he is third generation. So this is his family's company. His grandfather, who's still alive, 97 years old, Holocaust wow. survivor. Unbelievable story. Worth going to the Morgan Group website, morgangroup.com, and reading about it. He's written a book. Donated to the Holocaust Museum in Houston, Texas. Unbelievable man, calls me every week, still wants to know if we're over budget on any projects. Really? Yes, but anyway, so Philip, I would say was a little reluctant to get into the family business. Like I think a lot of third generation yep, folks a lot of are. They're like, I could do it myself kind of thing. But anyway, we the deal, Bluestone, uh, we sold it and we, you know, we, made, we made a decent profit. I think we made about, gosh, a little over $10,000 a unit. And we're that's like, awesome. we thought it was great, and then we heard Mike Morgan joking with someone he sold the property over about leaving twenty thousand a unit on the table, and we're like, that's not a joke. That's like two of our deals that we, you know, that would take us five years. And he's and he's like, all right, you guys, you guys need to think. Mike is always someone who's never going to lead you and tell you what to do. He just wants to kind of hint at it and let you come to your own conclusion. And He's very good at that. Something I've learned from him. He's like, you should. Think about the institutional world. You might have to take a step back. You're not going to, you know, have the keys to the kingdom right away, but it's a way to do scale. It's a, it's a great, it's a way to have a good quality of life. And yes, the operations are super important, but in the class C business, you can't drive top line. So it's all about getting more and more operationally efficient. Mike said that's great for certain people but you need to know if that's your personality or on the other side of things if you if you like to build if if you like design if you like construction he's like that's what attracted me to real estate initially and and that's exactly what I liked and why even going back to my college days what drew me into the business. And so we ultimately kind of dipped our toe in the water. And this is 2012 now. We started, end of 2011, 2012, we started consulting for Mike, realized that that was just more of our personality. There was a more sophisticated finance element to that that part of the world and just kind of started working for Mike. And it's, it's, yeah, so it's been good ever since then.
0: Level set the scale of the business right now because okay. it's quite substantial. So how many units have you built? How many are you building right now? I mean, you told me a stat and I'm like, you have that much construction going on? Wow, yeah. at one time? So I-, I wanna hear it, how does it break down? Yeah, so we, our,
1: our com- over our company's history, I'm only talking multifamily now, we've done five and a half billion dollars worth of ground up development costs as well as acquisitions last year, so 2022, we did 1.1 billion development and acquisitions. We currently have 10 projects under construction, which it's a lot to keep track of, but our ambitions are to have anywhere between 15 and 20 projects under construction at any given time, which essentially means you're starting roughly eight to 10 projects a year. And so we've been working towards that goal for a while, COVID kind of set us back, and now what's going on with the world? I mean, are we in a recession? I think so. Economists would disagree. Now that's kind of causing us to take a step back. But the nature of development, right, is that it's lumpy. And as much as you try to smooth out your starts so you could smooth out your finishes, it just doesn't work that way. And so we're just doing, doing our best to get deals to the point where they have a, a permit and when the capital markets
0: can cooperate we will start putting shovels in the ground again now are you having to buy the ground go get in permitted and entitled and then go through the construction process or are you negotiating a purchase upon permit or entitlement How, how does that process work and and i guess add to that how a deal comes to you what that process looks like at morgan sure so how we source deals is all over the map
1: and frankly that's the chase right and for me and probably for most of our developers that's the most exciting part of what they do and every deal has a story we're sitting we're sitting here in fort lauderdale right now and we've developed three projects kind of cradle to grave we passed them on the way here yeah exactly that's pretty cool and you're having me go back and so the the first deal that we did in, in a neighborhood called Flagler Village was brought to us by a guy, uh, uh, by an old time Fort Lauderdale guy. His brother actually passed away, and then he came down here to settle his brother's estate. Figured out that he actually loved real estate too, even though he wasn't a real estate guy. And instead of settling his brother's estate, ended up kind of building onto it. So we partnered with him Interesting. and that was our first deal. And then he owned more land. And so then our second deal in, 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 the na- in that neighborhood, which was literally one block away from our first deal, he kind of just said, we had such a good experience with Morgan the first time around. Why don't we go back for act two? So that's just, that's just one example there sometimes you know it's it's everything from a large public company that maybe owned excess land next to one of their office buildings that they thought was going to be a phase two of you know a phase two, and clearly office development doesn't make sense today, and so they realize the highest and best use is multifamily and they come to Morgan Group because they want surety of execution sometimes it's that Entrepreneurial sharpshooter that bro- just broke off on his own had a relationship, kind of uh, did a lot of the initial heavy lifting to rezone a site from commercial to apartments. Great location. In those situations, we'll be, we'll either buy the land outright or we'll we'll enter into a joint venture, kind of a co-development situation. We're very open to that, and so that kind of goes back to being entrepreneurial. It all starts with the quality of the dirt. And if we like the dirt, we will make the deal work. We will listen to our seller, our partner. they'll tell us what they're looking for. We'll put our heads together and get back to them within twenty four hours with a suggestion on a structure that maybe they can get on board with. And uh, we like to be we like to be
0: flexible there. What does it mean to be a developer at your size and scale? So when people th- think about development,
1: you know, it'd be fun. A lot, you know, a lot of different images pop into, pop into people's heads and all developers aren't created equal. And I think part of being good at the business and frankly, anything in life is just like looking yourself in the mirror and knowing who you are and kind of not only who you are today, but like who you want to be when you grow up. So there are some developers out there that look at a street corner and their mind just starts spinning and they're like, oh, I could put a really cool artisanal coffee shop on that corner yep. and you know I can I can work on the streetscape here and do some placemaking and have a 50 different unit types in a 70 unit building and and that's great and I frankly I would love to live in probably one of those units but that's that's not who we are we consider ourselves in some ways a manufacturer of residential and the ma- manufacturing process is one where you have to you have standards, and it doesn't mean that every widget's going to look exactly the same, but you're going to follow a process to create that widget. And w- maybe and then once you get feedback on that widget, you will then learn from it and incorporate it back into your process and iterate. And so I, I hate that I'm using the word widget because, I don't want to imply that we don't care a lot about the quality of our product. The opposite is actually the case. You know, the Morgan name is on the outside of every one of our projects and we will never do volume at the expense of the quality of our projects. But at the same time, one of one of our company's core goals is to chip away at the housing problem that we have in this country. We are just under housed. And it is very difficult to deliver a new a new unit of housing into, this, in, into the housing stock in this country. And so the ways to do that more quickly and more efficiently is by having a process and having set standards and doing our best to stick to those standards. And so we have a whole group at Morgan. We have multiple in-house architects that control something called the Morgan Design Guidelines, where we know... Every project we build is going to have one of two countertops and every project we build is going to have cabinet package that is in one of these two
0: color schemes. Really? Yes. And that's a way. What about like unit types and amenities? Is that included in that document as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Unit types, we,
1: we we have some bread and butter unit types that have been tested time and and time again yeah and we really try to stick to those especially especially in the kitchens and the baths there's no reason to get cute with the kitchens and baths we know exactly how many cabinets make sense for a one-bedroom kitchen versus a two-bedroom kitchen and we can kind of slot that module into a
0: lot of different unit layouts depending on the geometry of the site and the buildings it's very similar in hotels in my world we have some key features and some of them are so minute like an edge lit exit sign or something like these little details that we have to have in every single project that's, you know, come from my dad. And and I agree with it, too. I actually think it's like quite the opposite, because you spend so much time finding the best product, like maybe the best wood floor, or vinyl floor, or whatever it is. And you research that to hell and then you want to use it on every project. Who cares? It works. Exactly. Right. It, it, absolutely. And not only that, like we we know
1: what the underlayment is. So it's one thing what the tenant sees and can feel and can touch, but then there's the constructability aspect. So our our construction teams understand exactly how that manufacturer's tongue and groove vinyl flooring fits together. And one of the biggest complaints we get from our tenants, especially in stick frame product, is noise transmission. And most of the time it's noise transmission vertically, mm-hmm. not horizontally. Yep. And so we know exactly what STC rating, for example, we can get with that product. And so it's like, why, if, if we found something that works and, was it with, and is within budget and we can pick out the right colors that our design people can sign off on and is gonna resonate with, what, with the tastes of the day, there's so much risk in starting over with a new product that might have performance
0: issues. So how often are you changing this book? And like, what is the process? Do you have like a board meeting to pick new floors? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so we have a very, a very talented leader, Richard Camino, that oversees our design and quality assurance group. And that book is their baby. He's great at building consensus and he talks to all All the various leaders in our different departments to get their buy-in to what goes into the design guidelines. Every year we issue a new version of the book, and I say that. And but it's very important that I'm saying the the word guidelines and not standards. This is certainly not our idea. Plenty of companies have have some version of this, and like anything, it's it's not what's on the piece of paper. It's about the training and the process by which it's used, and if you if the book just gets too bulky right and just sits on a shelf somewhere you're better off not having it so that's why we revisit it every year we try we have a policy i hope we're following it where anytime we put a new standard in two standards need to come out because you need you just don't want it to get too unwieldy right And we have, you know, we have certain sections of that where before we start the design on any project, we'll give the section to the architect or we'll give a a different section to the civil engineer. And we try to make it as user friendly for those folks as possible so that all of our lessons learned, all of Morgan's preferences are actually getting picked up in each and every project.
0: We're in South Florida. We're in the Sunbelt. Everyone wants to be here. You are here. I've seen some developers here do very, very high-end rental projects, and I think we're also starting to see more single-family rentals, which seem pretty high-end, highly amenitized. What do you think about those two asset classes, and do you think Morgan's ever going to go down one of those paths? Sure. So I would say
1: that we have... We are somewhat in both of those categories, but not fully committed. And so, what I mean by that, we'll start on the BFR—you know, build for rent. A lot of a lot of groups are focused on that space. A lot of multifamily groups that we highly respect and our peers of Morgan started new divisions for BFR. And I totally get it. You can't argue with the fundamentals of millennials, right, and Gen Z wanting more space wanting a backyard but being on a limited budget. And so technology has also made it a lot easier from an operating expense standpoint to manage those communities. And so I get why developers are doing it, I get why there's a lot of capital chasing that area and the way that we've sort of dipped our toe in that space is whenever we design a suburban site that you know is more horizontal than vertical in nature we are always challenging the teams and our designers to figure out how to put some townhouse product on that site, whether it's shoehorning it into a corner of the site that was being underutilized, maybe wasn't didn't have enough room for a conventional multifamily building, or sometimes it's reducing the density of the site. So taking a 35, 40 unit multifamily building and just saying, it's important to us to provide diversity of product type within this community. So instead of doing 35 uh, conventional units, we're going to do half the number of large townhome units with you know, two car garages and really create like the feeling of living in a single family home. And the beauty of that is those residents are much stickier and then also you may have a resident who lives in a 900 square foot unit on that same property loves the location yep. their kid goes to school around the street lo- loves the amenities and then they can just upgrade within your community and then on the other end of the spectrum we've built some high rises that are you know top of the line amenities and we've done we've done reasonably well on those projects but like i said earlier we're we're a ma- we a like to we're tr- we like to consider ourselves a manufacturer of housing and those projects that are almost always in tight infill locations have a much longer pre-development process. The cities have a lot to say about every corner of the building. The construction timeline is a lot longer, which means our you know equity is outstanding for a lot longer before you start earning income, right? and the deal can start becoming profitable and the part of the issue there is you're really becoming a provider of services and you in order to get the rents that you need in those projects you need to provide every service under the sun and payroll on our projects is such a significant expense something that you could obviously relate to being on the hotel side of things and we've just seen over time that increased expense a road operating cash flow, so we're going to do those projects one off. They're they're good for company morale. They're good for the front page of our brochure. But we're going to think really hard about each one of those, and it's not, and it's going to be a little bit more of the exception
0: versus the rule. So when you see Adam Newman coming in and buying some tremendous real estate and saying he's going to revolutionize. How people live, I, I'd like to know if that changes your perspective at all, and if you were sitting with Adam, what you would tell him that he should watch out for. Okay,
1: I would. I, yeah, tell I, the I would, I would we start with. A, I would start with a very big compliment to Adam Newman. Never met the guy. I've 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 seen his documentaries, but as far as multifamily goes, he had perfect timing. He went on a tear and he bought, I'm making this up, but somewhere between five and 10 class A plus communities, literally at the perfect time. So his basis in those is extremely low. It is. And good for him. Right. right. And, you know, his, in terms of revolutionizing real estate, I would say that it is, it, it sounds good on paper and in a pitch deck and clearly I think Andreessen was one of his, is a big investor of his. He was able to get one of the smartest guys in the business to buy off on it. That said, I think there's been a lot of examples of people in prop tech that are thinking technology first and aren't true real estate operators. And I haven't seen any of them be successful to the point of tra- of, of transforming real estate. There's been incremental improvements, the technology, the revenue management has certainly gotten better. But in terms of the ways that our residents experience the buildings, I feel like it's largely similar to how they were experiencing the buildings 10 years ago.
0: If we do a deal together, we do a joint venture and we build a great site and you have some multifamily and I have a hotel will your residents pay more because I have the best bar in town, I'm right next door, maybe we have a shared pool and we have some pool boys and cabanas and a whole thing, and a great gym, and maybe some meeting space. Does that enhance multifamily or should these things really be separate? or, Or maybe do we have like a business idea here?
1: I think we have a business idea here. There's, you know, we're in South Florida. There's a, a, a saying that always makes me chuckle, you know, the best boat is your friend's boat.
0: So <laughs> the so best I, hotel is your friend's hotel. <laughs> yeah.
1: I would love to be, I would love to be next to one of your hotels and maybe, maybe we could pay it. We'll pay it. Yeah. We'll, but I got to shift some of the payroll to your, I know now. that's the issue. No, I, I think, I think that there is a, there's always a place for that. There's always a, a segment of society that are renters by choice and those people want to live in the the newest community with all the bells and whistles. And so you just need to be somewhere geograph- you know somewhere locationally where people are willing to pay a premium and whatever it costs it costs in order to have that true amenitized hotel like experience. But that like I said like those those projects are amazing but you need to they take so much work to make sure that they are executed perfectly. And that's why someone with like a hospitality background like you would be instrumental, right? In making, in, in making sure that we didn't kind of go left when we should be going right in terms of our design preferences and
0: what amenities we include. What would most surprise the listeners about overseeing 10 development projects at one time? So just to be clear, we have 10 projects under construction. We probably have
1: another close to 20 Projects under under development because the light and I would say the thing that would surprise them the most is just how long it takes to put a shovel in the ground, and that's the reason that if we, in order to maintain a consistent number of starts per year, right? Some are call it eight starts per year. How many projects you need in various various
0: stages of planning so that you don't have lulls in your in your start pipeline? And what's your fear there that you're gonna Lose talent because you can't afford to pay them if you have a lull, and you need to keep the machine going.
1: That's certainly part of it, right? We're we're running a business, and it is a human capital intensive business, and so we we at the end of every year, right? Where we're looking at we're looking at our revenues and we're looking at our expenses, and we need to make sure that we're ending up in the black. And so, yes, it is important to have consistent. It is important to always be mindful of what is the minimum number of projects. That we need under construction at any given time in order to cover that that annual nut and part of that is our nature you know we're not some publicly traded company we are we're owned by one individual mike morgan we are a family company through and through and so we're also not going to force deals just because the capital is there and is available and so we we need to maintain a pretty good backlog of development sites and have structures with our various land sellers, our land partners that give us the luxury of time so that when they're ready to go, we have a building permit. And when the capital markets do start cooperating, that we can, we can press the go button on them. So we have projects in our development pipeline that we've been working on since 2017. And for one reason or another, it's usually entitlement related. NIMBYism is a huge issue in this country for all product types definitely multifamily included, and they can delay a project
0: or stop a project from happening completely. So in a case like that, in your business, at the scale and size that you are, you need to have a huge balance sheet because you're not gonna probably wanna bring in a JV partner in 2017 and have them still sitting around here now or else your promote's like poof, right? Right.
1: Well, yeah, so we do, and this is not, the case with every opportunity where you pursue but in order to do the type of volume that i'm talking about the key is not buying the land so it's all about optioning the land on the front end for as long as the market will allow so that we don't have an so, so so that we don't have pre, you know pref taking away on that land before we actually know when we're going to be able to start start construction So we do, we do work with joint venture partners early on that say, you know, this, this location in Austin, Texas is exactly what we're looking for. We have a hole in our portfolio for this location. We want to pay a premium to take it off the market early because we know that if you go out and look for equity, once you're call it three months away from a building permit, there's going to be a lot of demand. So in those cases, we'll say, okay, come in now as our partner we'll split the pre-development costs with you 50-50. Okay. And then once we have our permit, we'll close into a vertical venture. And there it'll be, you know, in terms of the equity, it'll be a 90-10 or 95-5, which is us and most of the industry's kind of similar setup. And then
0: you're getting a promote? Uh, yes, we we, we and generally negoti- it. Is it like, are they all kind of the same or they vary pretty widely?
1: It's market driven and there's a there's a range but i would say the range is not all over the map in the conventional multifamily space generally there's a preferred return that's somewhere in the 7 to 10% range and then once the project or the or the lp investor hits a call it a 7 to 10% rate of, internal rate of return there are various waterfall splits and then somewhere in the high teens we're typically getting to a 50-50 so meaning that all distributable cash flow above some high teens IRR, we're getting 50% of it and our limited partner is getting the other 50%. It's
0: a great structure.
1: It It is a great structure, but it's it's very hard to hit those types of returns. And it's getting harder and harder as and the banks are being forced to scale back, and our leverage points are getting lower and lower, which just means there's a lot more equities,
0: like a lot more equity in these deals. That hurdle's getting bigger and bigger. All right. So, I want to like develop what scares me about development is not the construction. I love that. That's fun designing. I got it. It's the land piece. And you guys are entrepreneurial. I know you've figured out every single freaking option structure that exists. What in your experience, is really the best one to not only mitigate your risk during the hold period, you know, the value might appreciate, it might depreciate. How do you think about the value and structuring a deal that makes sense for a seller? Yeah, so they're, kind of like I
1: alluded to before, you have to, every seller is in a different situation, right? And largely the seller's motivations are driven by when did they buy the land or did they not buy the land? Was it was it inherited? So I would say the toughest sellers are the ones that have land that doesn't have any type of entitlements and they paid a lot or maybe even overpaid for the land and they have some type of expensive land loan. Frankly, those situations are probably not worth getting involved in because the reality is the seller's problems will become your problem. Oh yeah. And we we have some very experienced people at Morgan Group that have seen it all and when those types of situations make it to investment committee frankly they usually get killed before before investment committee we will there's just a higher bar to press the go button on a situation like that because the seller is just inherently they don't they don't have as many levers to pull they they can't be flexible with you In terms of our typical um, land seller situation, we love making the land seller part of the process. So, of course, we'll enter into simple PSAs where it's just an outright purchase and the seller doesn't have any ongoing involvement in the property. But often a seller feels like they're selling the property too cheap. And when when we set a purchase price for the land, we're often setting it. 18 months to three years before we're actually closing on that piece of land. And a lot can happen in in two, three years. Valuations can totally reset. And so the best part about having a land seller ride along with us is it's a it's a natural hedge for for them because let's say that we're in the beginning, we're kind of the market's sloping up and to the right, and we buy the land for a market land price in 2023. And come 2025 that price looks inexpensive well the land seller gets to participate in the ultimate success of the project so even though they maybe sold the land for less than they would have gotten had they waited two years they're ben- they're, they're benefiting in the upside and land is a key a key input to any development pro forma and so there's value creation there on um, day one and then the flip side is, you know sometimes we're you know sometimes we buy land because we're always buying land right we have enough going on where we're not timing markets we're not trying to time markets so if we contract for land at a number that's higher than what the market value is in the environment we're ultimately ready to start well great that land seller feels really smart and often the way that their participation is structured is they have the right but not the obligation to contribute a portion of the land proceeds into the vertical project as common equity. And so they may say, you know what? Nah, I'm good. I'll take my capital, then I'll pay
0: capital gains and move on to the next project. You're running a third generation business. Most third generation businesses fail. I know my, because my wife runs a third generation business too. And I'm curious to know how the company has been set up in such a way from Mike, where a non-family member can step into the role of president and lead this business with the CEO. What have you learned from him and how he's set up that mentality and approach? And how has that approach enabled you to thrive in the business? Yeah, so
1: I have a ton of respect for for Philip Morgan and Mike Morgan. So just as a reminder, Philip is um, the CEO. He's third generation and Mike is his father. It is one of the most productive father-son relationships that I've ever even heard of. And I'm lucky to have a first row seat to it. They're also very different people. And the industry has changed a lot. Like I said before, it's just become more sophisticated. And as such, we've had to become more sophisticated. And so the way some of the controls that Philip and Mike have jointly put into place are done so that the company will become a fourth and fifth and sixth generation business and will be a successful one. So some of those include the creation of a advisory board. So this is a th- there's four independent, so non- Morgan employees directors that are part of this advisory board. And then Philip and Mike also sit on this advisory board. And the advisory board is there to represent the interests of the family. Philip also put in place some very stringent requirements to become an employee of Morgan if your last name is Morgan. And so that is done as a way to make sure that we are not creating jobs for family members. If there's an open position and a family member wants to apply for it, they're welcome to there's a strict set of guidelines that they must meet in order to be even considered for that open position and i think part of my story is really emblematic of us not just talking the talk but really walking the walk i'm not a morgan but yet my i'm young and my path at morgan group has been phenomenal because we really are a merit-based organization and if It's not some place where, and because a lot of family businesses are like that, you can go and you can have a great career there. But once you get to a certain level, you're kind of capped out. There's no further upward mobility because it's all dominated by people with the last name. So I give them a lot of credit. Mike is one of the best dirt guys I've ever met. He'll walk into a new city. He will walk around the site. He'll say, all right, take me to the nearest grocery store. He'll walk into the grocery store. That's his demographic study. He doesn't need to see any reports. And he's like, "That site will work. Or he'll say, I don't think this one's going to be very good. And it does, when he says that, it doesn't mean we don't do the deal necessarily, because there might be a lot of reasons why we believe in the deal. And Mike will be the first to admit that he's just kind of reacting based on his judgment and his experiences. But guess what? He's, I think he's been right every single time. And so Mike is like the dirt guy and then kind of like naturally Phil is the very sophisticated CEO. He loves processes. He likes everything kind of put neatly in their corner
0: and they really complement each other very well. Okay. I want to go back to what you said about the dirt guy because this is interesting and the grocery store story is really cool because in your industry at your level, it's become so institutional that all of these you know, geniuses and economists are talking about the supply shortage and the housing stock being so low, but ultimately the entrepreneur in you just makes a gut decision. So maybe you could talk about like what is this housing shortage in some of the markets that you are playing in and what data and tools you're looking at to analyze whether it's a market that you want to be in because, you know, we were talking at lunch and I get calls all the time in Fort Lauderdale and Fort Lauderdale seen a huge resi boom. And all of these institutions that just call me to check on guys like you to make sure they're not crazy. They're like, will people move into all these apartments? Yep. And I'm like, I don't know where they're coming from, but they're moving in. They're getting absorbed. They always get filled. Mm -hmm. So what do you look at or is that all just BS and you're just going with your gut?
1: No, we're we're definitely not just going with our gut. We're not putting our finger in the air and just guessing.
0: So the grocery store is just one component of
1: yeah, that, the analysis. Yes. Yeah, so and that was yeah. So that was just more more of a fun story to make make my point. But in terms of what our process is and how we choose our locations, there's a multitude of factors that go into it. But it's at a high level, yes, there is a housing shortage in this country. And that is being caused by a lot of reasons. But the biggest one, in my opinion, is just how hard it is to deliver a new unit of housing. There's just more regulatory red tape at every step of the way that just slows down the process. And for a lot of reasons, immigration being a big one, and then supply chain shortages as we're coming kind of out of COVID, the replacement cost, the hard cost, to build a new unit of housing. And I don't care if it's for sale or for rent, has just exploded and probably not going backwards. So starting from that premise, yes, there is a housing shortage. However, on the apartment side, we're now going through a period where there was hyper-building, at least based on historical standards, and the 2023, 2024, that is when all these units are gonna be delivered. And more units, I think, than have been delivered since something like the 1970s. So pretty staggering from that standpoint. However, if you look at where those units are getting delivered, it's often in very concentrated pockets. And it is in pockets that tend to be more infill in nature. Fort Lauderdale, you brought up Fort Lauderdale downtown. Fort Lauderdale has something called rack zoning. Yep. It's basically prescriptive zoning. So you look at a site and you know exactly what you can build there. And that's
0: a great thing. For those who don't know, you could basically, in some of these zones, just build whatever you want.
1: You could build whatever you want, right? And that's a great thing if the city's city is trying to promote density from a land use standpoint, but from a developer who is profit motivated, of course, what that means is that it's a little bit easier to create new supply, right? Their barrier to, barriers to entry are lower. So we referenced the deals we did in Fort Lauderdale. Those were actually kind of earlier cycle deals. Frankly, we haven't looked at a new site in downtown Fort Lauderdale in a few years. We've okay. kind of had a we have a pipeline map in our office. We kind of have like a red X on downtown Fort Lauderdale because the, the the amount of supply coming was was scaring us. And then like you said, the units get filled up. Yes. The beauty of apartments is there's always someone willing to rent your unit. It's just about at what number? But the beauty there is they also you also get to reset that number every year. But we have gravitated at least in the past four or five years a little bit more to the suburbs where yes, there's higher barrier to entries to getting your approval, but it's only getting harder and harder. So if you can actually get your entitlements, you've created real value there because there's not another two, five, 10 deals right behind you. And so the bigger picture, the bigger point I'm making here is. To your hyper local point, we look at the location, then we look at the sub market, but you really need to drill down into the micro market and understand exactly what's going on on that corner to make an invest to make an informed investment decision. And that's why we have local teams, and you're never going to see us develop a
0: project somewhere where, where we don't have real boots on the ground. If Morgan's going four or five generations. Mm-hmm. and to keep you around because you're an entrepreneur and you're probably hiring other entrepreneurs, what kind of incentives are you setting up for your team members, your colleagues, to keep them here and to keep the machine going for multi-decades and generations? Sure, so we have our own Bible.
1: And our Bible is this, this I don't know, I'm make, maybe it's 50, 70 pages, booklet from Trammel Crow Companies and then Trammel Crow Residential and literally written on a typewriter. And it goes
0: back to the late 80s, early 90s. Is this the thing where they had the team like reflect on problems from like the savings and loan crisis or some 80s crisis? Yeah, exactly. Okay. But it's
1: unbelievable. I'm, I'm glad that you've seen it. I saw it recently made its rounds on yeah. Twitter and LinkedIn. Yeah. We've, we've been looking at this thing for like seven years, eight years, but it's incredible how the same mistakes, the same lessons learned, repeat cycle after cycle after cycle. And there's something powerful about looking at a physical copy of this document that was typed out on a typewriter, yet rings so true today that you're like, all right, this business doesn't need, we can overcomplicate it, but it's really not that complicated. And so one of the coolest things about Trammell Crow residential is that they started this regional partnership model. And so many of the multifamily companies that exist today—I mean, the Publix, Avalon Bay, and Essex—and then you have Wood Partners, you have Mill Creek, you have. There's tons of these. They're they're all offshoots of the original Trammell Crow Residential, and it's all about partnership. There's there's a parent company that provides the capital, and then there's regional regional development and construction offices that have their own PNL generally have one leader and they have a ton of autonomy to make decisions. And so when we think about the right incentive structures, it's all about pushing that ownership mentality down as far into the organization and into as many departments as we as we possibly can. And so Mike is unbelievable about this. You know, he there's a certain percentage of The profits that are retained by the family, but then a very large percentage of the pool is chopped up and shared with our senior team members. And there's, you know, they're saying, show me the incentive and I'll show you the result. I mean, that's human nature. That's very true. One example of this that we've changed in more recent hit memory and something, you know, I'm not, you know, I would recommend a lot of firms that self perform to do is on the construction side. So, Senior level construction people are used to bonus being bonus based off of construction milestones. So, some companies it's based on your schedule, right? Did you did you finish your schedule on time or early? In other companies, it's bone it's budget based. Did you have any savings? Some companies it's even general conditions based, like were you able to bring general conditions in within budget? I don't really like any of those models because it's indirect. Conflict in some ways to the developer's goal of profitability, which is as simple as it cost me this much to build the project. And if I could sell it for that much plus 20%, okay, we made 20 we made a 20% margin. So, on the construction side, it's very important to us that our construction folks, our senior level construction folks, that their compensation structure is exactly the same as the senior level developers. And that's a piece of the profit. That is that is a piece of the profit calculated in the exact same way so that everyone is, and that's something that we we let them all know because it's like your goals are the same, you are fully
0: aligned, let's all row in the same direction. So if a development leader on your team is pushing for a project and construction costs are rising, does that mean that maybe the construction guy is saying, wait a second, Mr. Developer, like I don't like what I'm walking into? I don't think this could be, is going to be a profitable endeavor or is he kind of just like, all right, I got to build it and hopefully make profit. How, how does that dynamic happen at the front end so that everyone wins? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the right question to ask because the reality is, is that
1: throughout any project costs only go one direction and it drives, you never
0: sp- came in under budget, right? Like, it, don't oh, make me feel bad and tell me you have because <laughs> I it, haven't. It is it is a
1: challenge. It is a challenge. So. What's very important to me and a lot of companies that do self-perform have kind of a Chinese wall between their development and construction groups. And then in my opinion, you kind of have the worst of both worlds because you have a contractor that is captive. So they're not competing for the business, but yet they're their own profit center and they keep their own contingency. And it's it just creates a lot of friction. It's like, why? This is not what's best for the project at the end of the day. What's best for the project is for everyone to be on the exact same page and have the exact same goals. So we are yeah. very, our construction team can has access to our development files and vice versa. So development shares its pro forma with construction every step of the way. We actually go as far as to kind of have lunch and learns where we'll walk our construction folks through how an IRR is calculated and the waterfall and what that means, because I think it's very powerful. This is an example that I just thought of. This is from a few years ago. We didn't have power in one of our clubhouses yet, but the clubhouse was ready for finishes, right. but we couldn't start installing millwork until the space was air conditioned, right? You need yeah. the wood to cure. And I can't remember the number, but maybe it was $15,000 a week to get one of these trucks and and pump in a temporary AC. Yep. And they're like, well, we're not going to spend that. And we don't need to worry about that because we're ahead of schedule. And I'm like, okay, this is a great le- opportunity. Let's figure out for every day that we don't open our leasing office and first units on the pro forma side of things, what that's actually costing us. And it's mind, it was kind of, it was eye opening because it's like, all right, well, let's now it's like, let's spend the money on that on that AC truck. Let's spend the money on like remobilization fees because it's all about getting income on the project as soon as possible. And because construction understands the development side of things and understands the income side of things, it allows them to then make more informed decisions in the field. And so, and the same goes true for development with construction. So a lot of times construction is like like this with their estimating forms. Yep. And there's all these, honey pots hidden in various line items like you talk to the third party GCS they know every trick under the sun in terms of where to wh- where to stash money for a rainy day at Morgan like the developers see that they, they, and they, they also understand that that money is needed right because construction is a messy business and from the day you start there are always unforeseens. And you need to make sure that your budget's healthy in order to tackle those unforeseen. But at least everyone is kind of open book and understands each other's
0: point of view. I love that. I mean, it's such an obvious point, and I don't know if it came from Travel Crow, but everyone that I know would definitely set their construction team's bonus on the construction, which is so disconnected to why the hell you guys are even there in the first place. I was going to ask you why you self perform, but that's basically the answer. So why don't you tell me what mistakes people make who do self perform that you guys have figured out how to make it work? Sure. So I I
1: feel like I've given part of the answer as to why we self perform, but not the full answer. Give me the full one. Yeah. And and this is I mean this is a part of the business that I'm super passionate about because we've we have built projects with third party contractors. So going back to twenty. 14 I've been involved in three projects with um, third-party contractors. One was in Southern California before we got out of the market. And we're not going to set up a construction team for a one-off project. And so that was an easy one. We built a deal in Phoenix, Arizona this cycle. Same story. It was a one-off and we hired a third-party contractor there. And then we built a deal down here. Two of those three deals generally went well. One did not, but I had a front row seat to how different the process is. Constru- when you start construction on any project, you're going to war. At the end, it's beautiful, right? It looks so great. People, you, It's amazing to watch people experience the the spaces and sip their $20 martini or whatever it is in one of your projects, yep. but it is messy and there is yelling and every person on that site has their own interests in mind. And so when you have a third party GC and I love these guys and some of them are some of my closest friends, but like the reality is is like they're they're looking out for their company first yeah. and foremost. And so there is just this air of CYA that exists. It's almost like a cloud over every project. And I'm an efficiency guy and it drives me crazy when you have so many talented people both on the developer side and the construction side spending countless hours davening over what how to write this email or how to word this var- this rfi or this this change order because those are just hours that are not going into actually what moves the needle right not going into bringing the project in in on time on budget and so by eliminating that like we're far from perfect, there's still some yelling that goes on, but at least we are direct to the subcontractors and there's not someone in the middle kind of acting as a, as a filter or a clearinghouse for the information. And then the last thing I'll say on, I could, I could write a dissertation on this, but the last thing I'll say on that, this is dealing with the subcontractors. The subcontractors also have to put up with the same BS that I was just talking to because ultimately there's only so much money at a project level. Yep. And the GC is like I love all these guys, right? But if the owner is playing hardball with them and not signing a change order, then it's really the subcontractor that's in a sticky situation. And the subs often, you know, will will do everything that they said they were supposed to do but end up losing money on a job because of that. And so uh, we've noticed that a lot of subs much prefer working for an owner builder because of that more productive relationship. They know they're going to get paid very quickly because you don't have to have the owner re- reviewing the rec, right? The pay app is directly from Morgan Development, directly from Morgan Construction County, directly from Morgan Construction. And they uh, they also, I think, will bid our jobs differently because after we get through one or two successfully with them, they understand
0: that it truly is a different process and it's not just marketing speak are you guys making money on the construction side or you're not there yet yeah so we so going th- so going back to the alignment
1: comment earlier each region manages their own PL and and then it bubbles up to a you know an overall company pnl and we intentionally Do not treat our construction company as a separate profit and loss center because we're trying to get everyone rowing in the same direction. So, our development heads of every office, they have a lot of autonomy and it's very important to me that every dollar of revenue that they're able to manufacture, whether it's from a development fee, whether it's from a GC fee, whether it's from some other small ancillary fee line item that they were able to negotiate. With our limited partner, like maybe there was a construction savings provision, it is all flowing up into the exact same revenue bucket because why should the company care? Right. And, and say, uh, yeah. And so that's how we think about it. So I don't necessarily think about the profitability of our GC versus the profitability of our development company. We also, on the construction company side of things, we have a very expensive, a group you know set multiple seven figures a year that is totally non revenue producing that is our our design and QA QC group and that's where our architects live and that's something we didn't have a few years ago and we had it a lot less formally and that is a major commitment to us a major commitment from us to the future to our standards to making sure that things get done correctly on site because it's not just about the project today or the next project tomorrow, it's truly about thinking five, 10 years down the line, and we're, and, and we're making decisions that preserve the quality of what we do, because that's our reputation, and we want, when we want our LP partners coming back time and time again to do repeat business with us.
0: So these aren't development managers. This is a separate division that's basically punching out the building for Morgan. We do have
1: Morgan people that punch out the building at the end, but this department's way way bigger than that. So we have, uh, gosh, I think set no, eight in-house architects. Wow, they're not stamping the drawings. We're still hiring th- who we think is the best multifamily architect in in a given location, and same with our engineers. But these are folks that come from that side of the world that help us manage the design process from it's usually schematic design where we plug that group in and they speak the exact same language as our design professionals. They know that design manual that I mentioned earlier inside and out, and they're the ones that are making sure that our design stays on schedule, that our standards are being picked up and that that development's vision is getting carried out in the drawings. The beauty of that group is like, you know, to pick something random, like how we detail the waterproofing on a window. We have approved waterproofing standards and we have a standard for a typical punched window. And so, if it's a stick frame project in Orlando and we have an assistant superintendent that rolls from that project and maybe he's a traveling super, so he travels to our project that's in Austin, Texas, that's at a similar phase of construction. He's literally going to see the Tyvek wrapped around that window opening exactly the same because even though there were two different architects, because two different geographies, they used the exact same standard. And that's what was in the drawing set. You're at a whole nother level. Uh, we have we have we have a lot of people focused on this and just a lot, a lot of great department leaders.
0: All right. So let's talk about the future. Where How are you steering this ship for the next five years? I know you want to have 15 to 20 projects, ripping at one time. But how are you thinking about investing? It feels like we're at the bottom of a cycle. What decisions are you making now that you're going to be loving five years from now?
1: Yeah, we, we, we're we at a... I mean, being very candid, we are at a scary point in the cycle. And we're having a lot of the same conversations internally on repeat because it feels like us and the entire multifamily universe like no one knows exactly what's what. So right now we are looking at our current pipeline of deals and figuring out which projects we absolutely love and are special and remaining committed to those projects and doing everything in our power to make sure that those get off the ground. We're also you're not going to be good at development. I said it earlier if you're not entrepreneurial, you're also not going to be a developer if you're at least not somewhat of a glass half full person. like Development requires a certain amount of optimism. And so what that also means is that we can't have a conversation about playing defense without also talking about playing offense. And the opportunities that we've started to see over the past four months are super interesting. And it feels like with every month that goes by, they're getting more and more interesting. And so... What's happening now, and kind of how we're thinking about the future, is that a lot of, uh, unfortunately, it's getting tougher and tougher for the less established, mids, smaller size development firms out there that just don't have the ability to access resources like we do, and don't have the same type of balance sheet to withstand these capital market headwinds that larger, more established groups like we and By the way, we're not even that large. There's groups that are much, much larger than us have. And a good example of this, I participate in this multifamily board, which has 40 of the larger developers across the country. We meet four times a year, two times virtually, two times in person. I was in California last week at one of these meetings, and it's a very safe place to just talk about what we're seeing, what we're doing. And the trend I noticed was the larger the developer, and I'm going to, this is a compliment to Graystar, a huge group. The, the more projects that they are able to start and capitalize in this environment. So, someone like Graystar maybe is starting, I'm making this number up 80% of what they thought they were going to start in 2023, 12 months ago, when the world looked a lot different and a lot rosier than it looks today. And then, as you move down the value chain in terms of size, that percentage of drop-off just got more and more extreme. And we're just at a point right now, and it's unfortunate because the entrepreneur in me hates this, but it is going to be exponentially tougher for smaller groups to find a bank willing to loan to them, to find equity willing to partner with them, and even sometimes find, find designers that are willing to work with them. And so everything comes in cycles and there will always be a place in the world for the best of the best in that camp. I do think we're headed towards a world where as the business grows up and gets more institutionalized, more and more market share is gonna flow to the larger groups. And so that's how we think about the future. And that's why, you know, when we talk about growing, it's both, it's offensive, of course, but it's really defensive. We need to grow in order to stay relevant.
0: So you don't wanna be where the competition is. You said that earlier. So what is interesting, about the deals that you've been seeing over the past four months, and where are you going to go where Graystar isn't going to follow you? Yeah. So,
1: the multifamily space is still, it's, it's still a big world, right? I mean, we by hit, hit, probably need to deliver somewhere close to 400,000 units on a consistent basis year in, year-end, just to, just to maintain and make sure that the housing stock deficiency in this country doesn't get worse. So there's a lot of room for Morgan and Graystar to play nicely in the sandbox together. And the thing I like, truly the thing I like the most about the multifamily industry is how friendly it is. Yes, there's there, there are times where we're competing for the same site and we're all competitive and we get pissed if so-and-so wins an opportunity. Sometimes they just paid a little more so they were able to sharpen their pencil just a tad more than we were. But a lot of times maybe they just saw something we didn't they got a little bit more creative on the structuring side maybe they just had a better relationship maybe instead of doing that meeting on teams flew out to key west to meet with someone that seller on their boat before yep. they left for three weeks on a fishing trip and that could that sometimes is the difference maker so what what would you to go back to your initial question like where are the opportunities that we're getting excited about today it's generally opportunities in municipalities that are really hard to get approvals in that somebody else spent a year five ten years working the right political connections behind the scenes waiting until a current commission rolled over and a new more growth oriented commission took the helm just whatever it is to get to get a piece of dirt kind of primed for a multifamily where you're not going to have compet- as much competition behind you those also just the nature of how growth patterns in this country work those tend to be neighborhoods that have good population growth there's an employment story there there's generally like good f and b good retail opportunities decent schools And that, that's, those are the types of folks that we're building for people who are attracted to those types of locations. I love it. Yeah.
0: So I ask everyone the same closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? Favorite hotel? Well, my wife and I like to travel a lot. And
1: when I think about hotels, I think about traveling and I think about vacationing. Yeah. And so traveling, you know, is all about pushing your boundaries and just almost taking yourself out of, out of your comfort zone. And so we were lucky enough on our honeymoon to go to Africa. And so we stayed at this place called Belmond Eagle Lodge in Botswana. Oh, wow. And I will just, I mean, that trip is just etched into my memory in a way, a way that's just so real. I can just take myself back there. And that hotel was super cool. And then for vacationing, and we're doing more of that now, there's a hotel in Mexico called Essencia that super easy flight you can be you can Where in mexico it's riviera maya so you fly into cancun you know from miami that's super easy you can you can leave your house and be there three and a half hours later it's about 50 rooms on 50 acres jungle ocean vibe you have your own little casita great great f and b on premises and we just have some amazing memories there awesome that might be a belmont too now I think it's an independently owned hotel. It's it's like a famous, it was like a Duchess's estate going back. And then some guy from LA bought it, I believe.
0: Someone said Botswana is the most purest form of wildlife in Africa that you can see. And it's definitely on the list. The problem with doing this is now like my travel budget and bill is gonna run (laughs) even more out of control than it already was. But hopefully we can go to one of these places together. It was awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. This was a pleasure. Thank you, Jake. This was awesome. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Wurzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Worzak is the founder and CEO of Dovehill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are
1: solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dovehill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate,
0: financial or investment advice.